Hey guys, it's Lauren Schmidt, Director of Ministry at Christ Centered Church, and you are listening to Christ Centered Cast. Where were you 20 years ago today? 20 years ago today, September 11th, 2001. I remember where I was. I was in college, but I was at, at actually at work when the events of September 11th, 2001 unfolded. It was a day in the week when I didn't have any class and I would spend the entire day at work. And one of the interesting things about my job, I worked in a print shop, was that we had a television, and it would often be on throughout the day when we were running a rather big print job, because you have a lot of downtime where nothing was happening while you're waiting for thousands and thousands of pages to run through the press. This particular day when I arrived in the morning, though, was on the earlier side in the morning, right around 8 o'clock or so. I remember walking in and seeing all of my coworkers' attention wrapped to the television that we normally would have silly things on in the afternoons, like talk shows. Only today, everyone was watching it. They were transfixed on the television and the things that were taking place. And I remember walking in right around the time that they reported a second plane had hit the World Trade Center and watching the news footage as that happened. We didn't get a whole lot done that day at work, to say the least. We did, however, spend a lot of that day watching the news on television. Twenty years later, we remember that day and the events that happened. We remember the lives that were lost. We remember the heroes that were made that day as they gave their lives for other people. We remember those losses and... and even more interestingly, I remember not even necessarily what happened on the 11th, but how different things seemed on the 12th as well. How the country seemed to, in many respects, with few exceptions, come together in a spirit of unity. The country recognized that there was a threat that seemed bigger than ourselves, beyond ourselves. Something that united us as people, regardless of what our social status was, or ethnicity, or religious affiliation, or political party. We recognized that there was something that brought us together. There was a loss of life, that blood was shed, and it made us realize that there was a threat bigger than ourselves. It is in many respects that sort of thing that actually brought the church into being. There was a life that was lost, a sacrifice that was made, blood that was shed to bring all people together. And that loss, that sacrifice, that blood that was shed was Jesus Christ. And Paul makes that point in the epistle to the Ephesians time and again when he explains to them the unity that they are to have in Jesus Christ because of his sacrifice and the difference that it should make within their church family and their church body. In fact, he spends the first three chapters of Ephesians talking about that. The unity and, and how Jesus Christ breaks down the barriers of enmity between the Jew and the Gentile. And how they are to remember that. In the first three chapters, he's telling them that through many very deep theological phrases and terms. And then he begins chapter 4 with uh, one of my favorite words. In fact, it kind of was the springboard for this entire series because it means approximately the same thing as for this reason. And that is, he says, therefore. Therefore. 
I spent the last three chapters explaining to you the importance of being one body in Christ. Being united. Because there is an enemy out there that is, in many respects, bigger than us. And while ultimately Jesus Christ and and the Lord God have the victory, we do have an enemy that wants to see us harmed, hurt, killed, and destroyed. Several enemies, actually, if we take them and consider them as uh, Satan, the world system, and the flesh. They're constantly assailing us each and every day. And as believers, if we are divided, if the church is divided, if the church is allowing itself to be uh, fractured and split, we become easy prey for Satan and his forces, for a system in the world that's very anti-God, and even for our own flesh within ourselves. Paul wants them to be unified. He tells the church of Ephesus this as well. We see Jew and Gentile were brought together through the blood of Christ into one body, one family, tied together through this common relationship. But we also see that that doesn't always guarantee peace. Because while our nation was more unified than maybe it ever has been, 20 years later, look at us now. It doesn't guarantee peace long term. Only one person, Jesus Christ, guarantees that. Paul understood this and he recognized it. And he recognized that all the theology that he just shared was what should therefore then bring the church to living out what he had told them, they, who, who they were and who they believed. And we see that as we make this transition into Ephesians chapter 4 and the first 16 verses. Let's look at those. And then we'll pray and, and dedicate this time of preaching to the Lord and dig deeper in. Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility, in gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each of us according to the measures of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, We are to grow up in every way in in him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Father God, tonight we commit 
the preaching of your word to you, to your glory, as we looked at the doxology last week. This is all for your glory. And Lord, I do pray for a spirit of unity among those who are here tonight, both, both in person and online, that we would be one family, united together, growing up in your Son, Jesus Christ, who is our head. And God, I pray that we would look at the truth of your word, see where in our lives we need to make changes, and bring ourselves into line with your word. And it's in your Son, Jesus Christ's name, whom we pray tonight. Amen. So Paul tells the church at Ephesus, unity is what they should strive for. That they now remember who they are in Christ, the unity that they have in Him. And he says, look, boys and girls, now it's time to start living out everything that I've told you about in the first three chapters. And he tells them, one commentator said, we should live like the people we have become. Paul said in those first three chapters, this is who you are in Jesus Christ. This is who you are as a believer. This is who you are as a member of the body. This is who you are as a member of the temple. There's so much imagery that we see there in those first three chapters, telling them over and over and over, and us over and over and over, who we are in Him. And then he says, now it's time for the rubber to meet the road. Now it's time for you to live out what you say you believe in, who you say you are, and who God says you are. And as we look at this passage, and we, we look at these 16 verses that emphasize unity, as we look at this text tonight, we have to ask this question. How can we walk in unity as a church? How can we walk unified as a body of believers when we live in a culture that seeks to divide everything that we say and do? How can we be a unified church that lives out who we say that we are and what we say that we believe? And Paul has that answer for us here in these 16 verses. And I like to call them Paul calls, if you will. Because it's what he's doing here. He's calling us to live differently, to do differently, to do what we say we are. He calls, us, calls for two different things in this text. The first thing that he calls us to do is to answer the Paul call to oneness. I know some of you might be sitting here thinking, Paul call, it seems a little silly. You won't forget it, though. He calls us to oneness. Where do we see this? We see this in those first six verses when he calls us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called. That manner, the worthiness, the worthy call, the worthy walk, was those three chapters of sound theology that we just worked through. He calls us to walk in a manner, to live in a manner, to operate and function in a manner that's commensurate with all of the, the theology that we say we believe and that we know about. All the blessings that we saw in the first chapter and the unity between Jew and Gentile and knowing what it means to once be dead in our sin but now alive in Christ. All of that stuff. He says walk in that manner. Walk according to those things. That's a worthy walk as a believer, as a Christian. We're called to walk as one as we were made to be one. That has been his emphasis over the past couple of weeks as we looked at the text, has it not? The past couple of sections have been about them recognizing that no matter who they are, where they come from, or what their background is, they are now in Jesus Christ, and as such, they are one family, one body, one community. 
and he says, do what you be, essentially. He calls them to be one as they were made one in Jesus Christ. We see that in this first verse. He says, I therefore, prisoner for the Lord, urge you, beg you, plead with you, strongly trying to convince you to walk in this manner, this worthy calling to which you have been called. To, to walk in a way that reflects who you are. We're called to walk as one, as we were made to be one in Jesus Christ. But he calls them to something else here in this, in this call to oneness. Oneness means walking as one, as we were made to be one, but it also means demonstrating that we are one. So we take a second first to, to reflect on our oneness in Christ together as a family, as a church body as a community of the little C Christians and, and the big C church together. But also, then, we have to take that reflection and put legs on it to literally walk it out or walk it off if you had a coach who called you to do that when you got injured. This is the time to walk it off, folks, to demonstrate that we are one as we're called to be one. And he gives some examples of what that looks like because we, we like that in our instructions, right? When we're asked to do something, we like to know how we're supposed to do it, typically. And he's, he does that here. He says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Verse 2, he gives some criteria for that. What does that look like to walk in that worthy manner? Well, he says you walk in humility. Walk in humility. And, and that's reflected in what I like to call both a dependence and an interdependence. Because humility in our walk is dependence upon God. It's recognizing that everything that we have is from Him and that we can't get through any day of our life without Him. We can try. And we might really make our best effort to try to get through the day without God, but He gives us every breath that we breathe. So it's impossible to entirely get through any day whatsoever without God having an impact in our lives. But if we're going to walk worthy, we have to live in a way that reflects that. It reflects that acknowledgement. That, that recognition that we're only alive and, and well because of God. It's a dependence. But it's not just a dependence because we're talking about the body here. It's also an interdependence upon one another. And we see that time and again in Scripture and we see it a lot in Ephesians. That God calls us to be interdependent upon one another so that we can then grow into the one body of Jesus Christ. So it's a dependence and an interdependence. And you need humility to be able to do that, don't you? It requires humility to be able to acknowledge that there is a God that is bigger than you are that you need for your very life. It requires humility to be able to look at your flawed brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ who are flawed just like you are and to say, you know, regardless, God has put you in my life and I, I need you like you need me. We need one another. It's an interdependence. It takes humility to be able to, to look at those relationships and recognize that that's what God uses in our lives to grow us. So he says, if you're going to walk worthy in a manner that reflects who you are in Christ, you have to walk in humility. But then he says, not only with all humility, he also adds, and gentleness. Uh, Admittedly, there are those of us who gentleness does not necessarily always come easily for. Sometimes there are those of us who are a little rough around the edges. 
And yet we still have this call as believers to live in a gentle manner. That is not a weak manner, that is a meek manner by way of the fruit of the Spirit. It's living in meekness and demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit that even though you might have a strength in a situation, it's recognizing that there, there are ways to handle a situation without running over people, without being domineering, without necessarily showing the strength that you have. Because Jesus had all the strength of the second person of the Trinity, and yet he walked through life in a manner that didn't just uh, assert that over everyone. Walk in gentleness. So he says, walk in humility. Walk in gentleness with patience. And if you're sitting there and you're going, well, I think I'm doing okay on the first two. Patience. Because that is one, no matter who you are, is a struggle for us as human beings. We don't like to wait, especially on the Lord. If you have children or remember what it was like when you were younger to want something and then to be told, just wait, not now. Did that make you go, oh, okay, that'll be fine. I understand. <laughs> those of you, some of those of you who have raised children, you recognize that that is not generally how things go when they are asked to wait. And even as adults, we're big children that way sometimes, aren't we? Because God asks us to wait and in some cases tells us to wait. And our response typically is, oh, okay, I understand. Oh, as adults, we go, well, I'm just going to figure it out on my own and do my own way then. But if we're going to walk in a manner worthy of what Paul was talking about in these first three chapters, we have to demonstrate patience. And this patience is ultimately self-restraint. It's waiting with the right spirit. Not just waiting, but waiting with the right spirit recognizing God's hand in the situation and restraining yourself from going outside of the parameters that he has set. Paul says to walk in a worthy manner. We are to walk in patience. So he says humility, gentleness, patience, love, love. And we get some qualifiers on that, which I love, because he doesn't just tell us not, he doesn't just tell us to walk in love. There's a qualifier. Because you need, Paul knew people. He knew how people were, and he was one of those people, like we all are. So we have a qualifier here, bearing with one another in love. As humans, we like to love people who are easy to love, don't we? We struggle with loving people who we have to, to bear with a bit, don't we? We lose our patience. We're not always understanding or compassionate. We sometimes want our own way in those situations, and we're not willing to trust the Lord in the process. But he tells them, if you're going to live in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, you have to walk in love. And the idea here is a forbearance. We're demonstrating the forbearance that God has with us. Because can you imagine if God reacted to us the same way that we reacted to the difficult people in our lives? Whew, that would be bad. It would be real bad, wouldn't it? And he says, if you're going to live in this manner, this, this worthy calling... You have to forbear with your brothers and sisters. You have to be patient. And this kind of love that he's talking about here is that Greek agape love. So we know he's not just asking us to love people who are easy to love or love people that we like loving or love people who love us back. But it is a God-like love for others. And that's the benchmark for what it means to walk in a worthy manner. 
according to our calling, living in a way that we are called to be. So he says, walk in humility, walk in gentleness, walk in patience, walk in love, and then walk in peace. And not just taking peace if it comes, and if it just works out that way and things are good, but look at the words he uses there. Verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That word eagerness means to strive, to be peacemakers. A lot of this is sounding kind of familiar to the Sermon on the Mount, isn't it? I wonder if there's some coincidence there. Eager. So we look for opportunities to make peace in the body. We see that there are people who are having issues, whether it's with one another or others, and we seek to find ways to help support those people and help them come together and recognize and realize that they are one body. We're striving. We're eager to maintain a spirit of peace. We're doing what we can to seek reconciliation when there are situations and issues. We don't just ignore it or turn a blind eye to it or sweep it under the rug or pretend like it's not happening. There's an eagerness to maintain peace. And not just peace like we might understand it, but rather it is the unity of the Spirit. Big S. Right? Not just the Spirit of peace, but the Spirit of peace. And it's a bond of peace. Because there should be a bond, shouldn't there? Because we're one body. Paul calls us to oneness. He calls us to live in the way that we were made to be. One. He calls us to demonstrate that oneness by living out these character qualities of humility and gentleness and patience and love and peace. And if you think, man, there's probably just a sermon even just right there, right? Well, guess what? There's more. Because Paul doesn't stop there with them either. He tells them that, that we walk in oneness, uh, we walk in oneness after when we walk after the model of the ones that we have in our lives already theologically. Because we have some examples or models of what it means to be one. And he gives them this as well in the text. So he moves through all those different criteria. And he, after laying all of those qualities out for them, in verse 4, he says, Why do you why should you walk that way? Well, it's because it's after the model of oneness that I've given you. Verse 4. One body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. So he says, here's the model. All I'm calling you to do is to live and demonstrate what it means to be a believer in such a way that it reflects the oneness of who God is and all the different aspects of your life that are already one. And when he talks about these things, when he calls them to be one body, he's speaking of Christ's body, his, his literal body, spiritual body, of which we are all members. And Paul elaborates on that in different sections and other epistles, doesn't he? Where he talks about being one body, unified, how there's different, there's the nose and the eyes, and I think sometimes the preachers are probably the mouth because it just makes sense. But, you know, and so you've got the feet and the hands and all of those things. One body in Christ, that's one in, in one spirit, again, big S, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does not have multiple personalities. He has one, and it's God. And we are called to demonstrate and reflect that in us and through us to others. 
So we can't be divided on this issue of the Holy Spirit. We need to strive to understand who the Holy Spirit of God is and to find a way to live together in one faith and one community because God has not designed us to be confused by the Holy Spirit. So we have one body, one spirit, one hope. That one hope is our resurrection to eternal life. That's the hope that we have. That's one of the blessings that Paul talked about in chapter 1 that we saw. That resurrection that we have to look forward to. So he says, one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, the head and leader of the church, both the, the, the big church and us, the little churches all over the place. We all have the same head. We all have the same Lord. We all have the same leader, ultimately, and that is Jesus Christ. He calls them to one faith in the crucified and resurrected Jesus. And he elaborates on that in just a little bit here, and we will. We'll see that. One, one crucified Savior, one resurrected Lord, Jesus Christ. It's the only way to heaven by faith alone. We saw that in chapter 3. One baptism. So we see here it's, there isn't multiple baptisms in the Christian life. There is one baptism. This baptism is meant to be an identifier of those who are members of the body. The body corporately of Christ and then individually of Christ. Which is why when we have someone, when someone accepts Jesus Christ as their Savior and becomes a believer in Jesus Christ, they are then baptized in the water. It's not the baptism in the water that saves them. That identifies them before those who are watching as a testimony. And then we invite them to become members of the local body. One baptism. And then ultimately, and I, I love this inclusion at the end, because it's kind of like, it summarizes all of the oneness here when he says, one God. One God, the God of the Jews and the Gentiles, both. Because to those Jewish believers, when he says one God, they're thinking, yes, there is one God and God is one. And there, probably there were many of them who were thinking of the Torah and the Old Testament as some of them may have been taught in the rabbinical schools. And we too recognize that, but we recognize that as one God in three persons, the Trinity. One God of both Jews and the Gentiles. And, and we look at these six verses, and these six verses, there's such a compelling argument here to look at our lives as believers, to look at our churches as believers, to look at the state of Christendom as believers now, and ask the hard question of why are we not more unified? Why are we not more one? We've been called to that. Paul tells us that that's who we are in Christ. He tells us that that's how we're called to live and to show others that we're in him. And that's the model that we're supposed to follow. And yet so many times we fall so short, especially today. It's almost as though we've forgotten that there's an enemy that wants to see us dead. And that will do anything to have us divided. We've forgotten that as the church. And we see here in the text, from so long ago, Paul is calling us to remember these things. And to remember the importance of unity within the body of Christ. If we're going to be a church 
that walks in unity, unity in Jesus Christ, we have to answer this first call, this first Paul call to oneness. And I don't know where you are as you're listening to this right now, but perhaps you or some of the Christians in your life that you know, maybe you're not getting along for whatever reason. Maybe you're struggling with your church situation because it doesn't seem like you can worship with a particular body or group of people. And maybe there are some legitimate issues or maybe there are some things that need to just be worked through. Whatever the case is, we have a call to be eager to strive for oneness. And that's my first challenge to you tonight as we look at the text. As Paul continues here, we see the second Paul call, though. There is another he goes on, and we see here, if we're going to be a church that walks in unity, uh, that walks as one, we need to answer the Paul call to growth. Because everything that we just saw in those last verses, if those things are where they are, and we are, are walking in those things that we just saw and looked at, it sets us up for the ability and the capacity to be able to walk as one in Jesus Christ. But then we see that it doesn't stop there. There, there is a call to continue to grow as believers. And we see that in these next verses. He begins here in the text, and we see that he calls us, Paul calls us in the text here, to growth first by accepting the grace of God's gifting. Because it's not just about living out these character qualities and things. There's a component of growth and, and service to others. So we see here in the text as we continue on in verses 7 through 10, he talks about this, this grace of God's gifting. And he says, But grace was given to each one, accord, each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? But they did also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. I believe this particular passage here is a reference to, and this I think is uh, commensurate with the context of the rest of the, of the epistle as well as other Pauline epistles, where he's talking about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the eventual ascension. And how, well, the initial ascension rather, and then the future ascension as well. So it's death, burial, resurrection, and ascension, all I believe within these particular passages. And this is key, because in Acts, what does he tell the disciples as he's getting ready to depart into heaven? He gives them the great commission. He tells them that the Holy Spirit will be with them to empower them to do the work of the ministry. And that's what we see here also. It's like he reiterates that for people and reminds them that because we have one God, one Spirit, uh, one Lord who is over all, one baptism, one faith, all of the things that they were uh, able to do through the power of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, we then need to remember that that's what we're doing here as well. So he reminds them that because of the Holy Spirit, They've been given a gift, and we each have been given a gift in the Holy Spirit as well to do the work of the ministry. And we'll see more about that in just a second. But he tells them that if we're going to grow first in the body, and we're going to grow up in the Lord, one another, unified, we have to recognize that each of us has a gift that we've been given by God to do the work of the ministry and to be used for the edification and benefit of others. So we don't just live this Christian life out in solitary as a, a consumer. We look at that interdependence that we just saw earlier in the text, and we see where there are those that need us to exercise and use our gifts in order to be built up. 
Well, that's challenging, isn't it? But it should also be encouraging that it's Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection that took place so that you could receive a gift from the Holy Spirit to be used to make other people's life better. People go through life and they wonder if they have a purpose. They wonder if they matter. They wonder if they make a difference. And the reality is, if you know Jesus Christ, your life has a purpose. Your life matters. And your life makes a difference. If you choose it. If you choose to let your life be used by God and the Holy Spirit to edify and build up other believers. So we're called to growth by accepting that we each have a gift by the grace of God that we're given because of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit. But then he takes it another step further, and he begins to talk about the practical ways that that works itself out through the church. Let's look at 11 and 12 there. It says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So we see this theme of unity is the undercurrent and foundation for these verses. So what we see here is that if we're going to grow in the Lord as, a, as one body, we have to recognize that not only do we receive a spiritual gift through the grace of God, but also that we're called to grow through either equipping others or being equipped ourselves. And he tells of the, the gifts, that, because there's the gifts individually, the ones that all of us receive here in the text, but then there's also, I believe he's speaking of the gifts of the different places in ministry that we have here, the different positions in ministry. And he, he lists them and names them, the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, to what? Equip others for the work of the ministry. Unfortunately, in our culture and society, many Christians and many churches today have adopted this mindset that it's the pastor's or the, the team of pastors' job to do everything because they're on the payroll. They look at church like a commodity. Like you can just go in, you can get what you want and move along. Because it's not your job to do all the stuff around the church to keep things going at all. That's what the guys on the payroll are for. And yet we see that that couldn't be further from what Paul and, and the Lord intended here in the text. There is that interdependence that involves equipping and being equipped to do the work of the ministry. So as a pastor, as a teacher, in fulfilling all those different roles, it's our job and our call to help everybody else do their jobs better. To help them serve. We, we serve so that others can serve. And we serve the servants. That's really what a pastor does and should do. And that's what he tells them here. If you're going to grow in the Lord in one body, you have to recognize that there are those who are called to equip. And then there are those who are called to be equipped. And we're all one or the other, but everybody's something. Nobody gets a free pass here. So we're called to growth in one body by accepting that grace of God's gifting. And we're called to grow through equipping and being equipped. And we're called to uh, growth with a goal in mind. And Paul tells us that goal here as we continue in the text. So he says, you received a, grace, a gift by God's grace. We see that in the, the apostles and prophets and pastors and teachers and evangelists who are called to equip the saints, so everybody's involved here, 13, and here's the goal. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, 
to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. I love that there's several twos there. It's like Paul is saying, it's, he's restating this concept of this, or this idea of spiritual maturity. Because that's the goal. That's what growth is. So as one body, we're called to grow up in the Lord. We're called to spiritual maturity. Let's look at the twos there again. To the unity of the faith. There's that idea of unity, that concept of unity again, of one faith. And of the knowledge of the Son of God. So growing in the knowledge of Christ. And here's another two. To mature manhood. Now manhood being a generic term that of course refers to men and women, I believe. So really, I guess you could actually put it peoplehood. But that's what it is. It's everyone. To, uh, to, uh, to mature manhood, to mature woman, to mature peoplehood, to grow up in maturity, in spiritual maturity, in faith. And then the other two, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. When I think of that, I just think of this large shadow, the shadow of Jesus Christ, as standing over me as, as though it is something I'm striving to attain to, that this side of eternity I'll never be able to and you'll never be able to, and yet we still strive for it. That's what we're called to do. It's a call to Christ-like maturity. That's the goal. And you know what? When it's every one of our goals, guess what there will be? Unity. Because that's what you have when everyone is striving toward the same goal. You might all look different getting there. But we're getting there together. So we see that, that growth, Paul's call to growth, comes through accepting this gift of God's grace, of, of being equipped or equipping, of growing in Christ-like maturity. And then when that happens, when that happens, that, that call to growth reflects the unified body that Paul has called us to, verse 15. Rather, he's saying, okay, so I said all of that. Here's another way to say it. Uh, Paul just elaborates here over and over again on these things, but it's, it's probably we have to hear multiple things, right, in order to, to learn them sometimes. But he says, rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So he said, I told you all those concepts of what it looks like to move toward growth. Now let me give you a little picture of that. Let me give you a little illustration of what that's going to look like, folks. And then he begins to explain how growth works. And many of us, I believe, have probably at least physically grown to the point where we've experienced a little bit of life in our bodies. Some of our bodies may be more broken than others. But for the most part, everything's still kind of working, I would think. Not always, but mostly. But he wants us to have this idea of the joints and things holding everything together. And that's what it looks like. Held together by every joint with which it is equipped. There's that word again. Growing up in Jesus Christ who is the head. And he says, you know what? When your body's working properly, when your body's doing what it's supposed to do, good things happen, right? Isn't that the truth of the human body as well when everything's functioning the way it's supposed to? It makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So he comes back to this concept of love again. And we know already what he means by love. 
that godlike love, the unconditional forbearing love that bears with one another. He calls the church to growth so that it reflects one body. He calls them to oneness, demonstrated in the character qualities and in the models that we see in our lives, in our faith. So what do we do with this text? Well, as a church, if we're going to walk in unity, we must answer those calls. We have to answer this call to oneness, to recognize that we are intended to be one in Him. And to answer the call to growth. Because when we answer the call to oneness and growth, that's when unity occurs. It gives us all the, the tools and the character qualities and the things that we need to be able to accomplish this. And then it shows us what the goal is and how to get there. Man, it's like perfect instructions, isn't it? So if we're going to do that, that's what we have to do. We have to answer those calls. So I want to invite you and encourage tonight, by way of application of this text, the first thing is this. Consider these calls that we looked at tonight. Spend some time thinking about them. It's like I tell the kids in martial arts. It's great to come to class, and it's great to learn and practice techniques while you're in class. But if you want to really learn them, you have to practice at home, too, when you're not in class. And it kind of works that way in the Christian life as well, especially when we look at the text and what God's Word means for us. We can't just look at it when we come to church, and we can't just practice it when we're here. We also have to put some practice in at home and living this stuff out. So I spend some time considering these calls. These calls to oneness and calls to growth. Examine your current walk, how you live. Determine if it promotes unity in the body. Unity in the local church as well as the corporate universal church. Look at how you live and see if your life shows a desire for oneness. For oneness. So consider these calls. Think about them. Meditate on them. Mull them over. And then secondly, secondly, cry out to the Christ of the calls. Because he is our goal, but also how we get there. Cry out to the Christ of the calls. Oftentimes, if there's something that's keeping us from unity with one another or even with the Lord, because that relationship is even more important than our relationship with others, if there's something getting in the way, it's often sin that gets in the way of us being able to commune with the Lord and with one another. And we need to cry out to Christ for forgiveness. If this is the first time you've ever done that, to accept Him as your Lord and Savior, to know Him and have a relationship with Him. But if you've never, if you've done that before and you've been a believer for a while, sin breaks our fellowship with God. It doesn't break our position with God. He still knows us and loves us. We still have a relationship with Him. But it's a damaged relationship that's repaired through confession and repentance. So we call out to Christ, even if we know Him, to forgive us. To have that fellowship restored. Confess any sin tonight getting in the way of your oneness with either the Lord or others or both. And then to look towards spiritual growth and maturity, because those things are stunted when there's something in the way. So we, we consider the calls, we cry out to the Christ of the calls. And then the third thing, the third challenge tonight, is to commit to the calls. Commit to the calls. Before you do anything else today, in the quietness of the seat, in your heart, make a commitment to the Lord to be a Christian who strives for oneness, Immaturity with your life in our church body. 
Make a commitment to the Lord to be a Christian who strives for oneness, both inside these walls and doors and without each and every day in your life. Because that's the call. The call to live in a manner worthy of the call. Father God, thank you so much tonight for your word and for this section of practical application that's built upon a foundation of the truth of who you are, Lord. And God, I cry out to you for this church tonight that we would be unified. That we would demonstrate that to one another. That we demonstrate that to other believers in our life. And that those that don't know you would see that and be drawn to it. God, I pray that in a fractured time in our culture and in society, that we would look to you as the one God, the one Lord, the one faith, the one hope, the one spirit, the one baptism, and that we would live as one in you. God, thank you so much tonight again for your word and for the difference it makes in our lives. And it's in your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name we pray tonight. Amen. Thanks for listening. Tune in next week.